Every time it rains, I get nervous. Maybe uh, listeners, longtime listeners of this podcast will remember that I had a roof issue last year with the rain. And so ever, ever since then, we fixed it. But ever since then, I'm, I'm very nervous that I'm going to go upstairs and, and find a leak. And today is raining quite, quite heavily. I love the idea that there are longtime listeners of this podcast. <laughs> That's such a sad story. What's happening with those people? We have li- we have listeners. We have listeners. We do. We do. Um, most of them are required to listen, which I think is the I think it's the only reasonable excuse for listening <laughs> to this podcast is that someone in a, in authority told you you had to. I don't know. I think every once in a while we have something insightful to say. Sure. You no, know, I mean maybe it happens accidentally. Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government at William & Mary, and I'm joined, as always, by my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Jeffrey. How are you? I'm doing well. Welcome back to season two, my friend. Season two. We're back in business. Yeah. And so I just want to say, uh, before we get into it, I just want to say to all the people who forgot to unsubscribe to this podcast at the, at the end of season one... Hi, we're, we're still here and uh, happy to be coming back to you for, for season two. And even if you're not no longer required to listen to this, we'd love to have you along for the ride. A- absolutely. Yeah. I have a feeling that season two is going to be even better than season one. It's just a hunch. All right. Well, I, I hope you're right. Happy to be back. I'm happy to be back, too. Not just not just in Williamsburg, but but also with you here on this on this podcast. I just wanted to ask you what your your sort of initial reaction is to uh, America ending uh, what has been a very long war uh, with Afghanistan, about 20 years or so. Um, And specifically, I've been struck by some of the press coverage as as sort of painting uh, this war as either a success uh, for the United States or a a tremendous failure. Um, There there seems to be a lot of of discussion and disagreement on on what this war uh, sort of was about and how we judge it uh, in, in retrospect. And so I'm just curious if you have any sort of overall thoughts about the Afghanistan situation. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about some of the specifics. Yeah, I think Afghanistan is a, a tragedy. Watching the pictures coming out of Afghanistan over the last few weeks, the sudden fall of Kabul, the desperate attempts of people to make it out of Afghanistan, it's been horrible to watch. And I, you know, we're at the 20th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. As we record this, my entire professional career has been kind of in the shadow of 9-11. And it helped kind of direct my career trajectory. Many of our colleagues who study international relations feel the same way. Many of our friends in government are in government because of 9-11 and this kind of call to action that came out of it and the invasion of Afghanistan that followed directly from it. And there's no escaping the kind of human tragedy of the story. The people killed, the lives lost, military, civilian on all sides. So we, we shouldn't lose sight of that. But here's where I break from other card-carrying members of the foreign policy establishment. And I will say that I don't think there was an elegant way out. And I don't think we could have stayed indefinitely. And I I respect the administration's decision that it's going to be messy. It's going to be horrible. We got to get out of this war. This war is no longer serving American interests and probably hasn't been for a long time. And that's a tough thing to say to, to, to a country who's lost so many people to this conflict. But I think it was the right decision to leave. And I don't think there was a way to leave that avoided chaos and human tragedy. 
And I think, you know, there's some debate about, well, why did the Biden administration ignore or not ignore, but uh, go along with the request of the Afghan government not to uh, move up evacuations of U.S. personnel and uh, Afghans who had aided U.S. personnel. And the administration felt like that would have led to a even quicker collapse of the government. I, I think there's maybe quibbles to be had there. Um, but the bottom line is this was never going to be pretty. It was always going to be a rough ending to a rough war. Um, and if the administration wanted to follow through on the commitment to leave, then it was always going to look kind of like this. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right, uh, Professor Kaplow. I mean, in thinking about uh, public opinion polling uh, recently, you know, before, before the, the withdrawal actually started in earnest, right, where we saw the pictures. I mean, the, the, the American public, um, it seems to be uh, the case, was was ready to leave. Like, they were ready for the war to be over. And we have had um, three presidents now in Obama, Trump, and then Biden sort of pledged that they were going to end the war, and they campaigned on it. You know, that this is one of the things that they thought America wanted. And I think a lot of us agreed that it was probably time to, to end the war, and, and Obama was unable to do it. Trump, you know, sort of started the process. You could you could look at it that way and, and sort of creating this deal, if you will, with the Taliban. And then Biden Biden did it. Now, I think one of the, the problems for the Biden administration uh, was was agenda setting or expectation setting in the sense that, you know, he had that press conference uh, a couple of weeks before the withdrawal where he basically said, under no circumstances, this is going to look like Saigon. You know, of course, a reference to what what had happened in the Vietnam War. If the American public, I, I think, had been told uh, to expect that this withdrawal was going to be, uh, you know, the way that you put it, like, it's not going to be easy, that there are going to be some hard things that we're going to we're going to see on the television. Uh, we might not be able to get everybody out. Uh, that might have helped in the sense that Americans will look at this and, and, and see that, you know, this is this was expected. Now, the problem, of course, is that he, he didn't have a, a lot of incentive to do that uh, because you don't you don't really want to project exactly what you're planning to do. This is probably not a great idea, right? So I think he was in a very tough spot. I think he his intuition was that we need to end this war. I think he likely knew that it wasn't going to be easy. I'm sure he had intelligence estimates that suggested uh, that this wasn't going to be easy. I mean, I, I will say, I think the collapse was more rapid than at least I anticipated. I, I thought, you know, we were talking a few months rather than a few weeks for the fall of the entire country. And, and so, you know, maybe... Yeah. Maybe some of that was uh, an idea that they had a little bit longer to go, but I, I don't think the end game was any prettier, you know, even if it had taken a little longer to get to. One of the things that's bothered me about the discourse around the Afghanistan withdrawal is this this idea that somehow U.S. allies will look at this and say, "Oh, the U.S. cannot be cannot be trusted in the world." And the logic seems to be. Uh, something like because we withdrew from Afghanistan, uh, we are basically leaving these people behind and we didn't support the Afghan government. Uh, and all of this shows that, you know, when push comes to shove and the United States is, is done uh, with, with thinking that a war is in its interest, it's just going to uh, cut bait and, and leave. Now, I think there's two different sort of ways to think about this. On, on the one hand, there's this particular case, uh, which is, you know, Afghanistan. But then I think this also is about a broader sort of set of debates in international relations about to what extent reputation uh, and, and resolve and credibility kind of kind of matter. So we can I think we, we should talk about both on the first sort of specific about Afghanistan. This this argument doesn't strike me as uh, particularly uh, valid or, or useful. 
on the one hand, the Trump administration is the one that created this deal with the Taliban. And whether we liked the deal or not, we thought it was a good deal or a bad deal, we did have this deal with them. Now, Biden didn't have to uphold uh, the agreement. He could have just said, no, you know, new, new sheriff in town, we're not going to do that. But that, it seems to me, would have been a stronger signal that you can't rely on the United States, right? That's, that would be basically saying, uh, yeah, we're going to create these deals with, with other countries and we're not going to live up to them when, it, when we don't want to. That seems to be more problematic than upholding the deal. And then dealing with the, the circumstances. But the other thing about this logic that just doesn't make any sense to me, it, it seems to be that, that people are discounting the idea that America spent 20 years fighting this war. I mean, if anything, we've, we've overcommitted to Afghanistan. I mean, we, we were there well past, I think a lot of people would argue, well past when our interests were served uh, and likely probably should have gotten out a long time ago, maybe a decade ago. And so if anything, I think the way to look at Afghanistan is, is that the United States is more than willing to stay in places uh, for a very long time beyond when it's in its own self-interest, arguably, to do so. And, and the why that we did that, you can't say it's necessarily because of, of what it would mean to our allies or what it would mean to the Afghan government or anything like that. I think the why we stayed is a very complicated question. But to say that staying someplace for 20 years and withdrawing says something about your resolve or your, your reputation uh, strikes me as a little bit, a little bit, uh, misguided. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, this argument is overblown, and I think it's coming from some of the same voices that are objecting to the withdrawal, right? And so I, I think these things are all kind of wrapped up, that this is an argument made, that is made primarily from people who disagree with the idea of, of, of leaving Afghanistan in the first place. And one of the, the things they want to say to support this is that, okay, well, this sends a message about U.S. resolve in the international system and its reliability as an ally. And it's not clear to me that that's, that that's right at all. Um, and I feel like the, the idea that the U.S. was leaving um, did not come as a surprise to our NATO allies who were also involved in this conflict. Um, this is an argument that's been overblown. And if you're looking for evidence that the U.S. is not a reliable ally, there are other places to look um, that maybe make a more compelling case. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I mean, I think that the bottom line is if you if you are uh, in Taiwan, for example, and you're thinking about how uh, reliable is the United States, I'm not sure there are many lessons that you can draw from this Afghanistan situation. Yeah, I agree with that. Now, I think more generally, though, it does touch on uh, something that I think it, a lot of international relations uh, folks, uh, reasonable folks disagree about, which is the what to what extent reputation more generally matters. And this is a, a, a very big uh, debate, and I don't, I don't think we want to necessarily uh, get into it too deeply, but I do think it's worth highlighting a couple of different, different ideas, right? So the first one is, you can ask the question of reputation uh, as a sort of general attribute of, of a state, right? So in other words, the United States uh, has a reputation of being trustworthy or untrustworthy or living up to its commitments or not living up to its commitments, uh, which kind of puts the, the emphasis on the, the country, the state. And as a general sort of rule, and a lot of folks have have written uh, really nice you know books and articles about how this is uh, kind of a uh, a concept that doesn't make a ton of sense in particular instances, right? Because one of the things that's interesting about the way that human beings think about reputation, as opposed to just you know states, is that we tend to to sort of overemphasize the extent to which like attributes of a thing. Uh, matter relative to the structure of the situation. So in other words, there's, there's something in psychology called the fundamental uh, attribution error, which basically just says that we tend to say 
you know, that people do things because of who they are, as opposed to the situation that they find themselves in. And so this gets brought into international relations because people say, well, wait a second, it's not really reputation of the United States as a, as a general concept that matters. It's more a question of what would the United States do in a particular circumstance, given a certain you know, number of conditions or factors, what are they likely to do? Um, and I think that's relevant here because I think you and I are basically in an agreement that in this particular instance in Afghanistan, we don't think it tells us much at all about the reputation of, of the United States as a sort of monolithic category. Precisely because of the conditions, precisely because of the specifics of the situation uh, that we're dealing with. And so I think it sort of makes an error in a way to, to think that, you know, it's, it's because of the, the United States as an entity. It's like this attribute that we have. We're not trustworthy. That's why we withdrew from Afghanistan. I think it's, it's, like, a, it's like a category mistake or something. It basically, it's like we're looking at the wrong thing to understand uh, why the United States took action and what that might mean for, for our reputation. And then the last thing I'll say about this is, is there's this other part of the argument, which is that folks, scholars of international relations, kind of disagree on, on how reputation attaches to the state, right? So a lot of people would make the argument that, no, the United States has a reputation, and it's a trustworthy partner, it has allies, and this and that, whereas other people are more likely to say it's, it's really much more about the leader uh, uh, itself, right? So you know, some of the work that my colleagues in psychology have done have looked at how different leaders there's variation in how leaders care about uh, reputation. Some of them care quite a bit about their own reputations. Some care very little. Uh, and so we should think, be thinking about reputation not so much as United States, but potentially as about Biden's reputation. And, you know, many of the examples that people have, have brought up uh, over the years, I think, make, make sense here. I mean, we have Obama's, you know, sort of famous red line uh, with respect to Syria. Uh, and so people say, well, does that say more about the United States as, a, as an entity? Or does that say something particular about, about Obama? And I think reasonable people can disagree there. But that is a, that's an interesting way of kind of thinking about this, this broader question about uh, reputation and to a certain extent resolve as well. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And it, it, it's kind of interesting to think in terms of the United States uh, and its commitments and uh, reputation for following through on those commitments about the transparency of our political system and political disagreements. I think no other country is as kind of generally well understood in terms of its leadership changes as the United States. It is a uh, dramatically transparent country in terms of, well, what, is, what are the opinions and viewpoints of the people running for office um, and how do they differ? And it's not as if anyone is surprised by the Biden administration having different policy views than the Trump administration. And th not only that, but those views were entirely predictable. Uh, well, well in advance of the election. And so um, this idea that countries are going to somehow overlook that there is a change of presidency and think, oh, well, how can we explain this change in U.S. behavior? How strange? No, they, they know what happened. It was in the news. Biden won the, won the election. You know, there's a, a, a kind of slim down understanding of in, in academia, like, OK, here is a country and it has no leader. It's just a country floating in space. And so when it changes policies, folks are bound to wonder what could have caused that change in policy. But in the real world, we know. We know exactly what changed the policy. And so I, I don't think that that necessarily affects reputation. One thing that's interesting to think about, though, in this context is the way in which foreign policy has become more and more of a partisan issue over time in the United States and how this may affect U.S. ability to commit to policies across administrations. It used to be, maybe, I mean, foreign policy was always more partisan than I think we 
we'd like to say it was. But there were times in which it felt like a president of one party could commit to a foreign policy position and it would be followed through on by a successor from another party. That is, that politics stopped at the water's edge and foreign policy commitments would carry across administrations in a way that this doesn't seem like it happened today, um, that I feel like the, the foreign policy space has become kind of more partisan, um, particularly in the post-Trump era, than, than it had been, where the kind of uh, Republican foreign policy establishment was largely parallel to the Democrat for, Democratic foreign policy establishment in terms of its general belief in the liberal international order and the role of the United States in the world. And maybe those, those shared beliefs across parties have broken down a little bit um, over the last four or five years. And maybe that does say something about the U.S. ability as a country to commit to policies that carry across administrations. It's funny you, you mentioned this because uh, in my Government 204 Introduction to International Politics course, I used to have a lecture uh, that was all about uh, foreign policy beliefs. And one of the points that I made was, you know, Republicans and Democrats tend to disagree on a lot, you know, social policy, fiscal policy, all that kind of stuff. Yet when it comes to foreign policy, there's actually a lot of agreement. And I, and I used to show data from the, um, the Chicago Council of Global Affairs where they do these polls of, of people on foreign policy issues. And, you know, it was... It was there's some, you know, it's, uh, Republicans care slightly more about Taiwan and things like that. But, but by and large, uh, you had you know, more agreement in foreign policy areas than in domestic areas. And this was a nice point that I used to make that we're all, you know, sort of together on these issues. Uh, and I can't make that anymore because I think you're right. I think it's, it's changed considerably. And interestingly enough, I think you know, part of the, the change you know, certainly came from the Trump administration. But there were, I think in the Obama administration as well, I think there were there were sort of uh, latent sort of things going on where they're starting to see like divergence uh, between Republicans and Democrats, or we really should, I guess, say conservatives and liberals uh, on on particular foreign policy issues. But it's it's a little bit sad for me that I used to be able to to make these claims about foreign policy being this nice sort of harmonious uh, realm, and and it just doesn't doesn't really work anymore, unfortunately. Well, one um, kind of fun upshot of this argument is that it may be that autocracies make better allies than, than democracies, in part because leadership change is maybe more infrequent in some, in some autocracies, not all, um, in, in some autocracies. And so we might imagine that if you sign a deal with some dictator who's likely to be in power until they die, then maybe that's a more durable agreement than uh, an agreement signed with uh, someplace in the United States where the changing political winds leads to a different party in power. And so we have a different foreign policy agenda that maybe makes your agreements no longer no longer valid. We've seen the kind of whiplash of the deal with Iran, for example, which the Obama administration kind of led the, the uh, allies to sign to limit Iran's nuclear program, um, which was withdrawn from uh, after some delay by, by President Trump. And now the Biden administration is trying to get back in it. And it's 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 proving difficult. But, you know, that kind of back and forth is something we didn't used to see very often in, in U.S. foreign policy. Um, but if there had been a, a single leader throughout that time, we might imagine that we'd have diff different results. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think, you know, where this we kind of come back to where we started, which is the in Afghanistan. This is not something I think that tells us a lot about uh, the reputation or the resolve or the credibility of the United States. But the United States itself, I think it <laughs> tells us quite a bit about that. You know, if, if allies in, in Western Europe, let's say, are thinking to themselves, well, you know, if, if a Trump comes along every decade or two that uh, is going to basically say that these relationships don't matter, they have to start taking that into account. 
Uh, and so they, when they ask themselves, can we trust the United States? Partly it's going to be a question of, well, what is America's track record and what have we done in the past and what kind of relationships we have with other countries and so on. But I think you're right. If our, of our culture, if you will, our political culture gives rise to uh, populist leaders who are going to basically go it alone and, and downplay the significance of, of alliances and relationships, then that's something that they're going to have to hedge against. Um, and so I think that, if anything, says a lot more about you know, our level of credibility and, and reputation than uh, anything Afghanistan really shows us. Should we talk about um, briefly, I, this is, this is it can be kind of, kind of trite, but um, like reflections about September 11th? Yeah. No, let's, let's talk about it. I mean, my, um, let's see, September 11th, 2001 was my second day of grad school. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm, it's coming back to me. It's coming back to you, yeah. No, it's it's definitely like burned into my memory, right? Um, I know. Like like it is for I think uh, most people. I was uh, and had just entered a um, international relations, but like a public policy program. The day before September tenth, actually, I had been in uh, the first day of a class on terrorism with uh, with Jessica Stern, um, great scholar of terrorism, and it was like me and three other people in this room, right? And then on September twelfth, when it met again, it was in the biggest lecture hall. Um, on on campus, it became the most popular class overnight, um, as everyone kind of recalibrated what they thought was important in international relations. For me, like the day itself was a blur of checking on people, worrying about people, finding out uh, that some people I knew uh, hadn't made it. it just a, a you know finding my my friends and relatives and 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 in, a, in an era before like uh, smartphones. I mean, it, this was, it was a, I remember being at a payphone calling people that's uh that's how old how, how long ago that was yeah um i mean what are what are your recollections what were you up to on yeah my my recollections are very similar i mean i remember waking up that morning and i was a senior in college and so i was getting ready to go to class i remember i was taking a class it was like a russian literature class and i was like doing the reading or getting ready for class or something and i, I happened to have the tv on which is weird because i normally don't like in the morning i was you know i may, might have had like espn on or something like that and i remember there was a flash uh, like a news bulletin or something like that. And I turned it to CNN or, or NBC or something. I saw the first pictures of uh, when I turned it on, it was one of the towers had been hit and there was a lot of smoke and obviously, and people didn't know what was going on. And similarly, I was, I, I sort of, you know, waited to, to sort of see what was happening. Was this a small plane? Cause it, one of the things I think that's, that's difficult to realize now is that there was so little information available to us in that moment. I think if, if something similar happens now, you're on Twitter, you're getting stuff, you know, sort of immediately. Uh, we were basically reliant on the, the news channel you were watching. So whatever the Today Show on NBC happened to know uh, is what you got. And so I remember they initially thought it was a small plane. Uh, and then when it became obvious that it was an airliner, and then, of course, when the second tower gets hit, it's, it's pretty obvious to everybody what's going on. Uh, my dad was actually flying, I think he was from Boston to the West Coast, which as they, as they learned the flight numbers and things like that, it became uh, pretty scary. And so I was doing the same thing. I was calling my, my mom and trying to get in touch with them. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was, a, it was a very chaotic time. But I just remember thinking that that morning in particular, this is nothing like this had ever happened. You know, I, I had no frame of reference, I don't think, for this. I mean, I, I had studied a little bit of terrorism in college and, and classes and things, but it, it was normally, you know, it was, it was number one, things that happened uh, in other places, typically, like in, in other countries. And nothing on this scale sort of I, I could link this to, you know, I couldn't think 
sometimes you, you learn in college, like to think of like, what is this an example of? You know, it's like, well, I'm watching this unfold on television. I can't think of, I don't have a good sort of analogy to what I'm watching. You know, it was one of the first times in my life, I think, watching the news where I was like, this is really something I can't, I can't even like tell you what I'm seeing on the, on the television right now. Uh, and so it was just, it was very bizarre. And then I, I didn't know what to do. And so I went to class uh, like three hours later. And I'll never forget the, the professor. I'm sure had no idea what to do. He didn't, he didn't cancel class. He didn't say anything. It, it, we, we just went on. It was a 50 minute class and we just all sitting there looking at each other. Like, is somebody going to say something? Is, are we going to, are we going to talk about this? And I think he just was paralyzed. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to do. And so it was 50 minutes of sort of uh, a break from all that was happening. And, uh, it, it was just, it was surreal. And then I, you know, I was, I was basically glued to the television for the next several days. I think as, as all of us were trying to figure out what was going on. The the one thing I, I, I do, um, want to mention also is that I remember seeing the footage that day of, um, when George W. Bush heard the news, uh, in that classroom and, you know, he got a lot of uh, flack, uh, afterwards by, by sort of, you know, folks on the left because he didn't, he didn't do anything like immediately. Right. He got told, you know, in his ear as he's reading a shot, you know, like a second grade classroom, like a kid's book, you know, the, a plane hit the world trade center. And then he gets in second, um, I think I have this right. He got second sort of in his ear. We're under attack, I think was the, the words that they they used. And at the time, uh, you know, liberals and people on the left were, were basically like he should have stood up and said, I got to go. There's an emergency. We got to We got to do something. And in interviews subsequently, he, he basically said, look, I I didn't want to panic. I'm, I'm sitting in front of six year olds. I don't want to you know get up and storm out and, and make a big scene and, and have everybody upset. He's like, I, I was processing what was going on. Uh, and I exited the room as gracefully as I could, and and I dealt with it, you know, to the best that I could after that. But I just remember seeing that 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 video of him talking to the children uh, and reading the book, and I remember thinking at the time, you know, I don't I don't know what he should have done, but uh, he should have done something else. But now, as I reflect back, you know, twenty years later, I I don't know what else we could have asked the, the president to do at the time. You get told that we're under attack, and you're in the middle of a story. Very difficult uh, situation. And so I think, you know, George W. Bush, I think, uh, has a very complicated legacy, obviously. But on that particular moment, I'm, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I think he probably did the best that he could. But that's, that's also one of the memories that sticks with me. I remember going to dinner. I had plans for dinner. I went and um, on the TV, was it a, like a sports bar? On the TV in the background was Congress singing God Bless America on the steps of the Capitol. And I was thinking, that's never good. I mean, I, I, was, I was thinking that is a, this is a str- strange and upsetting moment in, in, uh, in U.S. history. And I think it changed, as I mentioned earlier, I, like, I think it changed the trajectory of many, many careers. I think it had a, a dramatic impact on certainly U.S. foreign policy for the last 20 years. And maybe now we're kind of moving back in the other direction, the direction we were trending in. I don't know. Like, I kind of see our trajectory prior to 9-11, although we were dealing with all these transnational threats. I feel like we may have been moving back toward a world where, like, the U.S. is really concerned with these other great powers. Mm -hmm. And then we get uh, 9-11, and suddenly it's, okay, it's terrorism. It's the support of other countries for terrorism. That has to be, that is our number one threat, because look at Russia. Russia is not a threat. Look at China. China is not a threat, at least not now. What is a threat now 
um, is uh, transnational terrorism. And so we need to refocus on that. And we invade Afghanistan and we invade Iraq, which I think is a similar kind of logic, even though it's a very different war. You know, we, we kind of go off on this 20 year adventure where the primary threat to the United States is this amorphous threat from transnational terrorism. And I feel like over the last several years, there has been a, an attempt by um, the U.S. foreign policy establishment to kind of steer away from that and back into the world of let's have a nice Cold War with Russia or China. You know? um, and, and I think it's an interesting dynamic. It's not at all clear to me that that is the right move, um, but it's, uh, it's almost been like this, the, the leaving Afghanistan kind of marks an end to this 20-year sojourn where we were primarily concerned with terrorism as our, as our primary threat against us, when even as these other more traditional threats kind of rise up in the, in the background. Oh, I think that's completely right. And, that, and that's exactly how I see it, that, that one of the main things that September 11th did was, you know, create this this sort of so-called war on terror, um, which, of course, is, is as, as critics have pointed out, is, is it can be a never ending thing. I mean, you can never really win against terror. So there's always a possibility of, of terrorism. And so that's that's problematic. But it also is problematic in the sense that you said, which is that, you know, it's like that scene from Godfather uh, uh, Part Three, which is a terrible movie. But, you know, every time I try to get out, they bring me back in. Right. This is Obama was going to it was going to be the pivot to Asia. It was going to be like I recognize China as the big, you know, the, the, the competitor now. Like we have to worry about them. And, you know, you get you get stuck uh, bringing things to the Middle East. Now, not that the Middle East isn't important. I don't think anybody would argue that it's unimportant. Uh, but you have seen these administrations want to want to sort of point out that there's other things going on as well that we need to keep our, our eye on and keep. And, and so well, that's one of the arguments, I think, for ultimately getting out of Afghanistan as well, which is. There are priorities in the in the world, um, and there's there's many problems in the world. And when you have a sort of focal point on a particular area or a particular topic or you know a region, you often lose sight of what's going on in other areas. And so I think that that's that's been one of the things that we've we've witnessed. The last thing I'll say about September 11th too is it, there was a moment, and, and it's sort of looking looking back after, especially I think the the period of polarization that we're currently in, it's it's really striking to me that there was a moment after September 11th where the country really did come together. I mean, it came together because there was a tragedy. But I remember, you know, watching that first baseball game after uh, September 11th, they had to cancel the games for a while and the first football game and, you know, all of this, all of this uh, stuff that was happening, uh, where the, the country kind of said, you know, we we have a common enemy, we're, we're in this together, and, and, and we're all, you know, Americans and things like that. And it sounds in, in retrospect, it sounds kind of hokey. But it re- it was real, and and I felt it certainly. And then, of course, that doesn't last very long, you know. And, and sort of, we, then we have decisions like the Iraq War, and you know, that's highly controversial at the time, and continues to be highly controversial. So yeah, well, and it, it's also worth thinking about how the that feeling of national unity led to some of the those post nine eleven policies that would not have been possible had there not been this groundswell of support for the presidency, including, you know, kind of a mass surveillance programs on U.S. citizens, including the invasion of Iraq. Uh, You know, there was this groundswell of support for the president. There was this sense of national unity. And that's not always good um, in terms of the policy outcomes that come from it. It basically gave a a free hand to those in power at the time to say, okay, here are the policies going forward. And it was very difficult for folks to stand up and say, that's not the way we should be going. Yeah. I mean, we created an entire uh, Department of Homeland Security, like after September 11th, the government basically said, 
and, and rightfully so from a, from a number of different perspectives that there were there were intelligence failures that we 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 had indications that something might happen but they, they didn't put the pieces together and one of the reasons for that might be that there wasn't a centralized you know process and all that so there were, there were legitimate arguments for doing these things but at the end of the day i think you're right if you look at what september 11th meant in terms of the government uh seeking more power ultimately uh that was that was a transformational uh period of of time there's no there's no question and so yeah you you go to the airport now and take your shoes off uh transportation security administration officials are are doing that why well because we had you know terrorists get on planes in in uh, small airports in the United States that didn't have any decent security and and so that gets changed but alongside all with that you get all these other changes that I think are uh really important as you as you talk about and I think the last piece too we, we can't underestimate the effect that they see it's, it's interesting with, with these historical things. It's very easy to connect dots that maybe we shouldn't be connecting, but we, I think we do it intuitively anyway, but because September 11th happens and we, we end up invading Iraq that has ramifications of course, for Iran and North Korea and some of these other uh, situations that the United States finds itself in. So from one, one event, and it was a tragic, terrible event. It was a huge event in this country's history. You can really trace, I think a lot of, of forward policy decisions and many of the situations that we're in now to that one day. And so, you know, when I talk to my students about how important that was, um, I think it's, it's easy to sort of think, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, it's an important day. But really, I mean, in, in the sense of the last 20 years uh, in foreign policy, I don't think there's a, there's a more important day uh, in sort of setting off a chain of events that, uh, you know, we're, we're currently still in the middle of, really. Yeah, uh, well, I think we should leave it there. Th- thanks so much, Marcus, for, for, uh, for joining me today. Professor Capital, this has been a pleasure as always. All right, we'll uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Did you mean to use the F word there, or did it just come out? That's being cut. It's being cut. I can't. I can't. I can't help in it. Post. Yeah. Cut it in post. In post. <laughs> did I? Did I send you? Uh, there, there was one like. Um, there was a McSweeney's like. Just get <laughs> vaccinated. Did, did, did you see that one? I did. I did see that. That's a I great did one. See that. Yeah, it's just all, everything that I've like wrapped up inside about this is like like expressed in that mcsweeney's mcsweeney's doing a great job uh speaking my truth i gotta say yeah no they do they're very clever they do a very good job and uh and they really they sort of tap into the anxiety uh that i think a lot of us have yeah well it's a lot of like random academics on there just like sending their 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 funny ideas in which i appreciate yeah i appreciate that too